Dear Lord, we thank you again for your great love. We thank you for those glorious words of, of worship that we've sung this morning. Lord, we thank you that your love is, is almost inexplicable in the way that you seek us out, that you leave the 99 for us. Thank you, Lord, that we are the recipients of that love, undeserved. We worship you in Jesus' name. Amen. Without wanting to make you feel too despondent or depressed or anything, but I want to just describe our, our country. And thank you for coming back, by the way. Last week I wasn't sure whether anyone was coming back, but you've done well. But let me describe our country in, through a series of, of surveys over the last couple of years. Our population as a, a nation in 2018, uh, just short of 58 million people. Our poverty level. Uh, a whole range of ways of measuring poverty, but uh, at one measure, our poverty level stands at around about 50%. Now, as I say, there are different ways of measuring poverty. There's another measure, which is known as the absolute poverty line. It's the, it's the measure of the amount of money that is required by an average person, uh, well, to purchase the equivalent of 2,500 calories, that's considered to be the minimum amount to keep an adult healthy. And for our country, that, the figure that is placed on that is around about 500 rand per month. Now, how anybody affords to buy food for 500 rand? Uh, but on that measure, our, our nation, 25% of people fall below that, that line living on less than approximately 500 rand a month. Now, statistics, I know there are statistics, and people find other ways of, of feeding themselves. Let's move on to a measure of corruption. Currently, South Africa stands at number 73 out of 180 nations, according to the perceptions of corruption in our, in our land. What about Crime. The latest crime statistics, again, many measures of crime, different ways of measuring, different things to measure. But let's just look at murders. The latest crime statistics tell us that there are 57 murders per day in South Africa. 57 murders. Gender-based violence. Again, different measures, but a range of statistics that say that between... 25 and 40% of, of women interviewed admit to some form of violence against them based on their gender. Even if it's the lower, 25%, uh, it is a horrendous. The other component of that is that yesterday, three women died at the hands of, a, of an intimate partner. Three people died yesterday. Three people will die today, three people will die tomorrow, and every day in our nation. Three women at the hands of one who supposedly loves them. Then what about racism? We've just been through a, a national election, so we know that race is at the heart of who we are as South Africans. We cannot escape it. Racism is, racism is pervasive. We speak words of race behind closed doors around our bras or our shisanyamas. 
We speak words of racism in our places of work. We speak racism in our political discord. Discourse. Discord, yes, that too. And we speak racism through the laws that are on our, on our books in South Africa. There are still laws that are based on race. I won't go any further than that. What about inequality? There's such a thing called a, a Gini coefficient. It's an international measure of the distribution of wealth within a, within a country. And South Africa consistently is at the very top of the score, which is not a good thing. It means that we are indeed one of the most unequal nations on earth as far as the distribution of wealth. One of the other surveys tried to explain some of these statistics. And the best that they could come up with was that for us as a nation, so many of these things have become normalized that violence is seen as being an acceptable way of dealing with difference. That when we are upset about something, we burn things and we break things and we march and we, uh, we are violent. There is a subculture that says that it is acceptable to treat women in a particular way and children and others. Anyway, I'll, I'll leave it at that point. I want to read to you another statistic from South Africa. The last official census recorded the following, that of South Africans self-identifying when asked with no co coercion, 80% of South Africans identified themselves as Christians, as practicing Christians. Is this the same country? As I look at the statistics, I can't help thinking that we live in a schizophrenic country. We have a country with many different identities. The statistic about Christianity is, for me, is shocking. Last week, the call from this pulpit was for us as Christians to rediscover our identity our true identity. The reminder from our reading was that we are Jesus' sheep. He is our shepherd. And we are told that we will never be snatched from his hand. Our identity, our true identity as sons and daughters of the living God is ours. It won't be taken away from us because it's not about who we are and how worthy we are, but about what Jesus has done for us and continues to do. That is the only identity that really matters. But as I quoted Africa and Flope last, last week, we have to admit that we come from many different backgrounds. There are different cultural heritages. And here in this room, most of us have walked different paths. No one is, is, uh, is, is not unique that we find our sources of identity in all sorts of different places. But again, the, the, uh, the beautiful passage that we had last week, which was that passage from Revelation, creating an image of what the church should be, not just in the, in the time to come, but here and now. That beautiful picture 
of the church in white robes gathered around God's throne, worshiping in unity Jesus Christ. But the truth not denied that of worshiping in unity, but from every race and nation and language group, that as the church we are diverse, but that we celebrate that which unites us, that which gives us our final and most important identity. In these weeks that lead up to Pentecost, I've uh, woven together a sermon series, and I've given it the title just simply, Radical. Radical. You know, radical idea is, is an idea that challenges the norm. It's something that stands out as being different. A radical person has come to mean somebody who perhaps works for dramatic change in an organization or in society. To be radical, whether it's an idea or a person, can be uncomfortable, can be inconvenient. And if you belong to a conservative society or maybe a conservative organization, this Anglican church to which we are just one little part, one little uh, component, is by and large a fairly conservative organization. And by that I mean is that all of our structures are designed to make sure that we don't make radical decisions. The change when it comes is incremental, that it's slow and controlled. In fact, we actively in many uh, organizations discourage the idea of radical change. The word radical in its source, in fact, refers to roots. Those of you who are gardeners, I think it has many other meanings as well, but, but essentially it is about a root. Roots are those hidden things beneath the ground that while unseen are absolutely essential to the health of the plant or the tree, absolutely essential to what we see above the ground. The roots are the things that absorb the nutrition and the, and the, the water from the ground. Those roots are a little bit, I think, like our cultures, our value systems, our other sources of identity. Unseen and yet shaping the visible, the way in which we act and look. To be radical is to challenge foundational values is to challenge those unseen values that many of us carry, that our society is shaped by. To be a Christian, I believe, is to be a radical by definition. Because all that we believe, if we allow it to shape us, will challenge the values of the society around us, will challenge our own values and then the values of the place in which we live. Isn't it amazing to think that 80% of our nation declare themselves to be Christian? Wouldn't it be amazing if the 80% of our land, that's some 50 million people, lived out the Christian message? How different would our land look? Because as I look at it, our nation, described by a tree perhaps, 
is unwell. The fruit that it bears is rotten. The tree is stunted. And it's because our unseen values have not been transformed by the 80% who believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. If they were, our nation would be different. And so our call as a church is to be radical, is to take seriously the message that is ours. And so we are called to be a radical church. I want to read to you a line from that amazing man, Eugene Peterson, the one who wrote uh, the message. And he writes this, My conviction is that the church is the community that God has set at the center of the world to keep the world centered. And he goes on, the resurrection of Jesus creates and then makes available the reality in which we are formed as new creatures in Christ by the Holy Spirit. See, the season in which we reflect on the resurrection should remind us of that most amazing, radical love that God has for us. The love that was witnessed on the tree, the tree of sacrifice, the tree of of love. The truth is that our Christian values will challenge our, our cultural values no matter what our values may be. And there may be people who are sitting here in this room today who will say, well, you know, all of those statistics are all well and good, but none of them applies to me. I'm not corrupt. I have never st stolen anything. I don't beat my wife or my children. I try to be good. Obviously, the call, the challenge, goes out to all the other people. But you see, that's not the way it works. Because our call is to be transformed into the very likeness of Christ. That's the standard to which we are called, the fullness of Christ. And there's nobody in this room who has attained that standard yet. We are called to be transformed daily into the likeness of Christ. And therefore, the values of the church, the values of Jesus Christ, call each and every one of us to challenge the values, the deeply held values that have shaped us, that come from our past, our culture, whatever it might be. Every one of us is called to change. The church is called to be defined by love. Our beautiful reading this morning. Thank you, Paula. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. In many ways, that's the foundational statement, uh, the foundation stone upon which the, the church is built. Jesus and that love. There's no coincidence that it is as Jesus prepares his disciples for the moment where he's going to leave them. And that's what he says. I'm going to go, but this is how you're going to continue to live out your life. You're going to live by loving each other. And even though I'm not physically with you, I will be with you by my spirit. Even though I'm not physically with you, they will know, the world will know about me because of your love for each other. That's the foundation of the church. We could give a long list of the things that the church is not. 
We could say that the church is not defined by our buildings. It's not defined by even how beautiful our buildings or well-kept our buildings may be. Our church is not defined by how influential our leaders are. Our church is not defined by our traditions, by our liturgies and lectionaries and, and the things that we wear and when we do together. None of those is bad in itself, but that is not what defines who we are as the church. We are defined by our love for each other. Can you imagine if 80% of this nation had committed themselves above all else to love their neighbors? Our nation would be different. I want us to examine really quickly what love looks like in practice. It's one thing to say that we need to love each other, but what does that mean? As I've hinted at already with the, the topic of our, of our series, our love is called to be radical. It's a radical love. It's a love that transforms. It's also a love, as we, as we read the passage from Scripture, that is a command. We've spoken about agape love. It's a, it's a decision. The love that we, that we are called to, that we are commanded to exercise, is a decision. We can't wait for the warm and fuzzy feelings to, to flood over us before we love those around us. Because Jesus has said, love, love now. Jesus shows us just how radical this love is. Romans chapter 5 verse 8 says, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's challenging because this decision to love means that we are called also to love those people who are not particularly lovable. In fact, people who we may not like at all. And so we understand, we begin to understand that radical love is actually incredibly sacrificial. And in this season after Easter, once again, we have a role model that shows us exactly what sacrifice looks like. I need to ask you, just as I ask myself, a really difficult question. It's a rhetorical question, so you don't need to own up to anybody. But the question is, when was the last time that you committed an act of radical love? When was the last time that you loved somebody who, in fact, did not love you back? When was the last time that you loved somebody who perhaps spurned your love and threw your offering back in your face? When last faced by somebody who was undeserving of your love, you loved anyway? Not for their sake, not for your sake, but as an act of worship to our God who loves us first. You see, as if you're like me, then I'm kind of programmed, and maybe because it's, I'm made in God's image, and God is a God of justice, not so. And so when something bad happens, when somebody says something bad to me or does something, my first inclination is there needs to be consequences for that. 
that that person's been bad or unkind, well, they need to know about it. There needs to be some kind of comeback. But you see, fortunately, God is not just a God of justice. He is. And there are consequences for the things that we do or we don't do. But thank goodness that that's not the standard with which I'm judged. Because, oh my goodness, if you knew the person that I really am. God is just, but he's also gracious and merciful. And he loves me. And because of that, he forgives me. And he died for me while I was yet a sinner. That's the standard by which we are called to live. To live out that love for those who are unworthy of it. Let me read to you another line of scripture. By this we know love, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. John 3.16, for God so loved the world, 1 John 3.16, we are called in response to that love to lay down our lives for those around us. What about something else flowing out of love? Our call to forgive. A radical love chooses to forgive wrongs freely. Matthew chapter 6 verses 14 onwards says, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive you your sins. In Colossians chapter 3, it says, Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity. How do we forgive those who have caused us great pain? It's not easy, and I'm not suggesting that it is. And particularly in the context of our country, as we look at the divisions and the pain and the legacy of our past, it is not easy for people to forgive. For those of us who have everything, it is so easy for us to say, let there be a line in the sand. Let us draw a line in the sand and let us just move on. Let us, the past be the past and let's move on. It's convenient when you have everything and that you're insulated from the realities of life by what you own and you possess. It's not easy to forgive when you feel deep, deep hurts. The call is for forgiveness. The call is for, for, for Christians to model a sacrificial forgiveness to anyone and everyone. But there is also an onus upon those who are the recipients of the forgiveness. For us to live our lives as a reflection of that magnanimous and gracious forgiveness. For us to live our lives differently because we are forgiven. We cannot pretend that the past does not exist. And forgiveness does not expect us to do that. Forgiveness does not mean that there are not consequences to actions that have been bad. Forgiveness does not mean that we forget. But it means that we do things differently in the future. 
we are called to a high standard. In Luke chapter 6, as Jesus shares that most challenging of sermons, the Sermon on the Mount, he says, But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. Love your enemies. Love that is committed to the highest good of those whom we're called to love. It's hard. That reading goes on. Do to others as you would have them do to you. It's an incredibly high standard. It's known as the, as the golden command, the golden rule. You know, in law, we, we have something similar In the law, we say, do not do this to that person. Do not do that. Do not commit murder. Do not commit adultery, etc., etc. But in Christianity, the, 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 uh, the standard is do unto others. It's not a question of remaining neutral or remaining safe. The commitment on us is to do, to act, to act out our love, our forgiveness, our blessing of our enemies. It's not enough to avoid those who we dislike. We need to seek them out and bless them. Consciously, intentionally, sacrificially. Because you see, that's the way that our country gets turned upside down. That's how the 80% begin to make a difference in this land that we love. We can't carry on doing what we've always done because then nothing is going to change. Christians have to stand up and be counted. It is we who need to do the difficult things for the betterment of our land. It is us, no one else, not the politicians. It's us. And so I'm left as I wind up by saying, is this possible at all? Am I able to love the way that I'm called to love? I'm not sure that I am. There are days in which I go, I just don't know it's possible for me to do that. And it's at moments like that that the Spirit speaks. It's at moments like that that my heart becomes warm. It's moments like that that I, that I know that God is with me in the midst of my struggles and in the midst of your struggles to be who he calls us to be. You know, Jesus, in the last chapters of of John's gospel, is at pains to try and explain to his disciples the the love that he shares with them. That we love our Father by by loving Jesus and by loving our, our neighbors. Our call is first and foremost to know God and to know his love. We cannot do the things we're called to in our own strength. It's not possible in any of these challenging things to be able to go, well, I'm just going to change the way I live. As a matter of of decision, I'm just going to decide to live a better life. I'm going to decide to love people more than I do now. It's a recipe for disaster and for failure and for despondency. It's a recipe for no change in our country. The only decision that we can make is to allow God, to allow Jesus, to allow his spirit to move within our hearts and to transform us from the inside out. And this world won't be changed overnight. 
but one relationship may be changed in your family this day. One person may be blessed this day by an action that you decide to take this day. An act of overwhelming kindness, undeserved, may change somebody's way of looking at the world and at you. That's how the world is turned upside down. And so in conclusion, it's no secret that our country is divided. Indeed, the world is possibly more divided now than it has been for decades. And there are many reasons for that. There are unwise, there are foolish leaders at the helm across the nations of the world at the moment. Don't follow them. Don't follow their example. Follow the example of Jesus Christ. Make, make his kingdom great again. To me, it feels like there's an uncertain, uncertainty. And as a parent of, of children, of three children, that uncertain future tugs at my heart. But what it means that as Christians, we have an opportunity to shine and to shine boldly. In a time of fear, Christians have the chance to spread Jesus' radical message of love with reckless abandon, to be bridge builders and peacemakers, to resist fear and shame and oppression, and with steadfast and unwavering kindness to show love and compassion. The way we do it is by taking every opportunity to be reminded again of who we are in God's sight, that we are precious children of the living God and he loves us. We are called to seek each other out, even those who we would not normally associate with, especially those that we would not normally associate with. We are called to listen to each other, to hear other perspectives, to experience the way other people view the world. And then we are called to love and never to give up. And when we fail, to love again and to love again. And in the power of God, to love again. Amen.